0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 15, verses 1 through 16. Words of Jesus. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Heavenly Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to teach us this morning. Should we profit in any way eternally from this passage, it will be only because, Father, you've blessed us. So we ask, O Lord, for that blessing. We pray that, Father, you'd be our teacher and guide this morning, that, Father, you'd work in our hearts as we study your word, as we seek to understand it, and that, Father, you would give us understanding and give us an understanding that seeks to align our hearts with that understanding. In other words, Father, we ask that you would make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Well, um, we return to a passage that we looked at, uh, I think, six weeks ago. We had uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, and then we've had, I think, four messages on the church since then, so six, seven weeks ago, and uh, you guys all remember that, right? Uh, I, I wouldn't expect anyone here to remember that, and I will make a confession. Are you ready for a confession? <laughs> I don't remember it either. Um, I had to go back and listen to what uh, was said um, in uh, uh, John 15, um, six, seven weeks ago. And uh, as soon as I started listening to it, it all came back to me. And um, basically what we did is we started to do what, what I call some of the heavy lifting, you know, there are, there are texts that require some heavy lifting, just like there are jobs that require heavy lifting. You know, we've got a wall in our driveway that's starting to lean. All this rain we've had over the last several years, it's, it's just leaning. You know, you can see it's it's probably moved to maybe six or eight inches. And um, there's no way to fix that without heavy lifting. You know, we want to put Versalock block in there, and they're heavy, and that's... And there are scripture texts that we come to that are just like that. There's no way to understand them without heavy lifting. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, uh, and my Father is the vine dresser, we're going to need to do a little bit of lifting in order to get exactly what Jesus is looking at here. Now, I think first and foremost, when we come to this passage, especially uh, in the wake of studying John's gospel the way that we have been, is we see the I am and we say, okay, here's another one of those I am sayings. And this is the seventh of the so-called I am sayings of John, how some people have parsed John's gospel. And just as a matter of review, we have the first one in John 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the bread. You have another one in John 8 where he says, I'm the light of the world, right? We have two in John 10 where he says, I'm the door and I am the good shepherd, Uh, We have another one in John 11. This really helps us get back into John, you know, thinking through these. John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, number seven, I am the true vine. And um, what are these sayings pointing to? They're none other than a a claim to be God himself. Nobody would say, uh, I am uh, anything in this culture. For fear of blasphemy. Because what would that what would that be what would that be pointing back to? It'd be pointing back to Exodus chapter three, where Moses asks the Lord, Listen, you've given me this assignment to go to Pharaoh and demand that he let the entire slave population go free. Somebody's gonna ask me who sent me. Who can I tell him sent me? And God says, Tell him I am sent you. And here we have Yahweh himself giving this. I am, if you will, giving the legs of I am, if you will, to his name. And when Jesus says, I am, whether it be the bread of life or the light of the world or the door or the uh, good shepherd or uh, any of these things, uh, he is claiming to be God himself, isn't he? He's claiming to be God in the flesh. And when Jesus says, I am the true vine, uh, we, we need to keep in mind that he's not speaking in a vacuum here. Uh, It's not like Jesus is traveling through the Holy Land and he happens to see a a grapevine and say to himself, you know, I never thought of it until just now, but the grapevine really lends itself wonderfully for a spiritual illustration. Now, that's something a, a preacher might do, but that's not what Jesus is doing. Even though the vine does lend itself to some great spiritual illustrations as we're going to see... But what Jesus is doing is he's drawing on a metaphor that's prominent in the Old Testament prophets. You know, in the beginning of our service, we read from Isaiah 5. And what is Isaiah 5? You know, I I introduced it as the song of the vine, if you will. And in, in Isaiah 5, Israel is described by God as a vine that he has planted A vine that he hoped to uh, see grapes come forth from. But there's an indictment against the vine, isn't there? The vine, instead of bringing forth grapes, it has brought forth what Isaiah calls wild grapes. Now, I don't think there's anybody here that raises grapes, uh, and it's a little bit foreign to us, but... Uh, scholars tell us that the wild grapes were typically very sour when they were bitten into. And it would take the work of a vine dresser, if you will, someone who tended uh, to the vine uh, to do his work in order to transform these what otherwise would be wild grapes into uh, luscious grapes. And uh, Isaiah in chapter 5 he fleshes out what he means by these uh, wild grapes. You know, in verses 8 to the end of the chapter, you have six woes that are pronounced in that chapter. And uh, you can look at that at your leisure and see uh, what is meant by the figure of wild grapes. But in short, uh, Israel is likened to a vine, the metaphor of a vine. It's a vine that God has planted. And um, Jesus is picking up on that Uh, that metaphor, if you will. And it's not limited to simply, uh, Isaiah 5. We have this metaphor in Ezekiel 15. We have it in Psalm 80. Uh, we have it in Jeremiah 2. I think maybe verse 21 right in there somewhere. We have it in numerous places in the Old Testament where Israel's likened to a vine, uh, with this indictment that she hasn't been faithful. She hasn't been fruitful. And when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is making a statement. Uh, Keep in mind, if Jesus would have said, I am the vine, he wouldn't be saying exactly what he is saying when he says, I am the true vine. You see that in your text? It means I am the genuine vine. And what we have going on here is very similar. To the same, uh, just the same comparison that we have between Adam and Jesus. You know, Adam is created in the Garden of Eden. He's put in a, uh, a situation, a kind of probation, if you will. And he in the Garden of Eden represents us all, doesn't he? He represents us all. And we know that when Adam fails in the Garden, sinning against God, what happens? We all fall, don't we? But Jesus comes, Romans 5 makes it really clear, 1 Corinthians 15 makes it really clear. Jesus comes as the last Adam. And the whole point is that Jesus now represents his church, he represents his people, and he doesn't fail. He is successful. Now, in the same way, we have Israel as the vine, if you will, the vine of God's planting, and she fails. She fails to be fruitful. And when Jesus makes this claim, I am the true vine, he is the vine who will not fail. He's the vine who will be fruitful. Does that make sense? And it's this metaphor that he's drawing forward. It's this metaphor that he's pushing, if you will. And he says, I am the true vine and notice, and we've seen this over and over again in John's gospel, every time uh, Jesus mentions himself or talks about himself, he immediately talks about the Father too, doesn't he? And oftentimes he'll talk about the Father before he talks about himself, but they're always together, aren't they? They're always together. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Uh, and we can see here, they're laboring together uh, at, at this. Uh, uh, this particular end here of fruitfulness. And in verse 2, uh, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, six, seven weeks ago we spent a lot of time in verse two, and I want to spend some more time in it. It's just a matter of review uh, and and also a matter maybe to inch forward just a little bit on this. Uh, a lot of times when when we see uh, verse two, there's, there are texts in, in the scriptures that seem to suggest that we can lose our salvation. And this is one of them. this is a place where a lot of people have stumbled because what does it say? It says every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he what? He cuts off. He takes away. And someone will say, "See there, you you can lose uh, your salvation. You you can lose it." And there are other texts in the New Testament that that uh, left by themselves seem to suggest this, don't they? They seem to suggest that you can you can lose your salvation. Now, I haven't had this happen in a long time, but once upon a time, it used to get back to me things like this. You know, I would hear things like this, and they were meant. They weren't meant. They weren't mean. Uh, but it would come back to me. You know, Rick, he's got a lot of insights in the Scriptures, and we like listening to him, but he teaches once saved, always saved. I used to hear things like that come back to me, and and I would think to myself, oh, boy, I teach once saved, always saved. I've never liked that phrase Um, as that phrase used to be, and I, I don't hear it much anymore. When was the last time anyone heard once saved, always saved? I don't really hear that much anymore. I don't hear anybody talking about being saved at all. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) I didn't mean that as a joke. I mean, I'm serious. I know many of us are laughing. It's okay if you laugh. I mean, I just don't hear it at all. I mean, the message we hear now is that God couldn't possibly be mad at us, and we can live any way we want, and it's all cool. There's no talk about salvation at all, but some of us will remember 15 years ago. That was 20 years ago. Man, that was a big deal, wasn't it? Once saved, always saved. And what it seems to suggest is that in a meeting somewhere, you could stand up or you could go forward and you could, you could repeat a prayer with a, a pastor and, and you, could, you could make a profession of faith and then go on living really any way that you'd want and all is going to be well. And um, I've never, I hope I've never taught that. I'll let you be the judge, but did you ever get the impression from me that I believe anything close to that? I hope not. If if you have, please talk to me, and uh, we're obviously misunderstanding one another, because I don't believe that. I don't believe that it doesn't matter how you live, uh, um I, I, I just don't believe that. So I've never liked this once saved, always saved. But what these folks, these folks weren't meaning to misrepresent me. Um, what they were really pointing at was the idea, I do believe in eternal security. I believe that the scriptures teach eternal security. What does that mean? That means that the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your sins are taken to Jesus His righteousness is given to you, and you're brought into this faith union. And we've been looking at this faith union, you know, in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verse 3. We receive every blessing in the heavenly places, don't we? The moment we're brought into this faith union. Um, And Ephesians 2, verse 6. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There's a sense And being seated in those heavenly places where you are absolutely untouchable because you are so protected by God. You are untouchable. How can God, how can anyone snatch you from the Father's hand? And isn't that what Jesus says in John 6 anyway? So the thing about it is, when we when we come to verses like this, we have to. If, if we look at these verses and we don't think of any of the other verses that I'm talking about here, we could come to the conclusion that we could lose our salvation. And to me, it's a horrible thought. Um, it's a horrible thought because I, I'll tell you, the first thought that comes to me if I think if I think I can lose my salvation, then I know I'm going to. I can think about it for a moment, but that's going to segue instantly until I'm going to. If I think I can lose my salvation, then I know I will. I am far from perfect. How in the world could I possibly hold on? And is it is this hanging on left to my strength? I have no strength. I don't have this kind of strength. Especially as you get older, you know, as you get older, you're... You know, I pick stuff up, and it everything gets heavier. It's just it used to weigh less. Now it weighs more. You ever notice that? Actually, it weighs the same. What has changed? What's changed is our backs. Used to be able to pick anything up. Can't pick any, and now you just so you need this doctrine more clearly as you get older. You need it more clearly. And I want to show you that this verse does not train Rick, eternal security. And some will say, well, Rick, okay, I get you, but it says a branch in me. And that's one of those in me, in Christ phrases that we have scattered all over the New Testament, which teach union in Christ. And to that I would say, it does say in me, but it is not of the same pedigree as all of these other verses that you're making reference to. The other references you're making to through the epistles, the and Christ, Christo passages, as they're sometimes called, the in Christ passages do speak to true union in Christ. They speak to a faith union in Christ. But let's, let's be clear here of the type of genre that we're looking at. Let's start with that. We're not looking at the genre of a New Testament epistle here. We're looking at the genre of an allegory, or an extended metaphor would be more accurate. The old preachers used to call it an allegory. Uh, More modern commentaries uh speak of it as a metaphor, and if you want to really be technical, you want and this will mean something to some of you, it's a metaphor, it's an extended metaphor without a plot. That would be probably the most. If I was if I was in seminary and I was asked the question, I would say extended metaphor without a plot, and that would make the professor very happy. Um, if that means anything to you, that's fine. But what's going on here is Jesus is using an illustration to make a point, right? And he is drawing from a metaphor from the Old Testament. And he is doing this in a context. Three things important in studying Scripture, right? Context, context, and context. What's the context? And I bring this up to you because it's easy to get lost here. What is the context? I mean, there's so, there's so many verses going on here. But let's, let's not forget the context is Jesus is probably, he may have left the upper room, but it's on the night that he's betrayed, Really, the dust hasn't even settled from Judas going down the road towards the chief priest's house in order to sell out Jesus. In fact, we could say as Jesus is speaking these words, Judas is actively involved in betraying Jesus. It's easy to forget that fact, isn't it, as you read through this and as you wrestle through this and the weeks go by as we inch through this material. But Judas is actively involved right now and betraying Jesus. Now, if Jesus would have come to Pittsburgh frequently... Um, and we could have all went to see Jesus. Jesus is going to be in Pittsburgh. We're all flocking up to see Jesus. And if we've seen Jesus a few times, we've noticed these guys that are hanging around with Jesus. And if we would have seen all 12 of the guys hanging around with Jesus, we would have never been able to make a distinction between, we would have never been able to say, well, something's up with that Judas character, right? Not the other, the other Judas Iscariot. He's, he seems a little bit shady. That guy seems a little bit shaky. Something's up. We would have never done that. How do I know that? Because Jesus says on this very same night, one of you will betray me. And nobody knows who it is. At least the other 11 don't. There are two people in the room that know who it is. But the other 11 are like, who? And you got Peter, you know, telling John, John, hey, you know, whisper. You know, they're laying down, they're, they're eating and they're reclining, they're on one shoulder. You know, I mean, you remember that discussion we had, you know, there John is on one shoulder, all he has to do is lean back and then there's Jesus and he can ask, who is it? They don't know who it is. They're, it creates so much anxiety that they begin to question themselves. Is it I, Lord? Is it me? It they don't know. Because in all practical purposes, all 12 of them are in Christ. They can't tell the difference. But by the time Jesus says these words, the vine dresser has already cut one of them off. Judas gets cut off. If you go back to chapter 13, I think it's verse 11. Um, No, it's further along than that. He says, uh, I apologize for this. But Jesus, Jesus says to them, he says, what you're about to do, do quickly. It's in that it's in that text there, the 1327. Thank you, Donald. Right there. What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, what's he saying then? What you're going to do, do quickly. You remember, I I put it this way. Jesus is pushing the button on the machinery that's going to get him crucified. He pushes the button on the machinery that gets him crucified. But something else is taking place there. Judas is cut off. From this point forward, Judas is never able to return to the position that he held prior to that moment. He's cut off where he withers and he dies. That is what's going on in verse 2. And the decisive factor, if you really want a decisive factor, keep your place in 1 John, or in John 15, and turn with me to 1 John. 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. There you see, John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, I'm going to speculate here, and this is just a speculation, but I think it's a a good speculation that John learned this lesson most deeply and acutely with Judas Iscariot. Think about what a lesson that would have been. All the anxiety, who is it, who is it? It becomes really clear uh, in, in the very near future who it is that betrays jesus and his end becomes clear as well um, so I, I think there's a there's certainly a relationship between first john 2 19 and john 15 verse 2 and i ask you to return there that has to deal with being taken away every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away what is judas's problem he hasn't bore fruit Let's think about it. What kind? I mean, if we want to say he bore fruit, what kind of fruit did he bear? Selling Jesus out for 30 shekels of silver. That's the fruit that he bore. And before we throw any rocks at Judas, let's ask ourselves the question, um, have we sold Jesus out in our own hearts for anything? We'll say, well, wait a second, what would it look like selling Jesus out? Loving something more than Jesus is selling him out. Judas loved the money. He, he, he was attracted to 30, 30 pieces of silver. It was 30 pieces of silver. Now, of course, there's a sense, there, there's idolatry in all of our lives. There's a spiritual adultery in all of our lives. And so what's the difference between a believer, a true believer, and Judas? The true believer recognizes this idolatry and this adultery, and the true believer hates it. Judas is feeding it. And it's possible to, uh, to be committing a sin quite similar to this. Uh, when we pay lip service to Jesus, yet our hearts are not attached to him. You follow me? And that's happening. It that happens all the time. It's happened in every generation. It's happening now. Where we're conf- we're professing Jesus, but we're-, we're keeping him at arm's length. We're professing Jesus, but we're not publicly worshiping Jesus in the company uh, of his people. Uh, We're professing Jesus, but we're not gathering on Sunday morning with the people of God. We're professing Jesus, but we're not walking through life with Jesus at the center of our life. Something else is at the center of our life. We're professing Jesus, uh, but he doesn't have a hold of our soul in the respect that he is the governing principle of our lives, that he is the love of our lives. This isn't ever going to be perfect in this this life. But that principle is alive and well in a true believer, and it is lacking in a person who is yet to come to true saving faith. Does that make sense? That's why we have to be really careful with sin. That's why to say, oh, you know, Rick believes once saved, always saved. Oh, my goodness. How in the world could we know? You want to ask yourself the question, okay, Rick, you're kind of scaring me. Um, how do I know if I'm truly in Jesus or not? Well, Jesus is teaching us the answer. Are you fruitful? Jesus says, Listen, if there's no fruit in you, then you're going to get cut off. Are you fruitful? Is the question. Well, then we, the next question you're going to ask yourself is the, Well, what, what am I looking for in my life? What is fruitfulness? What is the fruit? Um, do, do I do I have to be like one of those Corsairs in World War II that every time they shot down an enemy plane they had another they had another mark on the side of their of their of their plane? Do you guys, uh, World War II, World War II illustrations are definitely dated. I get it, but uh, we used to see that stuff all the time on TV. Um, once now, well, never mind that botched up. Or is there a mark in our belt? Is, is fruit a mark in our belt for everyone we've led to Christ? The answer to that, well, that is fruit for sure, but that's not all of the fruit. When we think about fruit and we're thinking about what fruit should we be looking for in our lives, Galatians 5.22 Some will say, okay, that's the passage, uh, fruit of the Spirit, right? Yeah, fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There are nine things in that passage. That's the fruit. That is fruit. Some will say, wait a second, that's fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is never on a solo project. How many times have you heard me say that? Jesus is never out on a solo project. You know, the Father is never out on a solo project. They're always laboring together. This is fruit. So what do we ask ourselves? If we want to ask ourselves, okay, is there fruit in my life? Well, is there love? Is there love in your heart? Is there a growing love in your heart for the church, for the people of the church? That's what 1 John tells us. One of the marks of true saving faith is that we love the brothers. In fact, John tells us that, doesn't he? He says we can know that we pass from, uh, from death to life, if we love the brothers, and of course that would be the sisters, are we growing in our love for the people of God? Is that love growing to the point that it, 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 it bothers you to be away? Does it bother you to be away from this group of people? Does it bother you to not see them uh, or see us for weeks on end? Does it, um, is there there an attraction, if you will, to the family and people of God? That's love. But what about love for Christ? Are we growing in our love for Christ? And I'm not, listen, none of us are doing this perfectly. Don't look for perfection in any of these things. If If we look for perfection, then we're all out. But look for evidence of it and look for growth in it. And we always want to be looking for growth in it. And if we see evidence of it, but we see it trifling or we see it failing, then we need to ask ourselves why, and we need to get rid of whatever is causing that to happen. Does that make sense? Love, joy. Do we have joy in the Lord? Is prayer nothing but an empty duty like taking out the garbage? You're happy when it's done, but nobody likes to do it. But it or is prayer joyous? Is there a certain joy about prayer? Reading the word. Do you look forward to reading the word? Or is there joy in reading the word? We're going to, I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but Jesus is going to talk about that in this section. You know, the first eight verses are largely given to the metaphor itself. And verses nine through 16 are largely a, 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 kind of an explanation of the metaphor. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But you have love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, or love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, uh, self-control. Are we growing in those things? You see, these are all fruits that we should be looking for in our lives. And someone said, well, wait a second. Now, if I'm looking at my life for this fruit and I don't find it, what do I do? Well, the answer is easy. We all know the answer to that, don't we? Lord, I confess I have, I can't see any evidence of fruit in my life. Please hear my confession and and help me in my unbelief. Help Help me here. Does that sound reasonable? And don't let him go until he does. Jesus has promised that he will never cast out anybody that comes to him, hasn't he? That would include any one of us. That would include anyone that we talk to. Don't be afraid to tell people, listen, you come to Jesus, you go to Jesus, he's not going to turn you away. Don't be afraid to tell people that, because Jesus tells us that, doesn't he? He says, I will never cast out anyone. Now, this is fruit. Now, what we see, and the point I'm trying to make, first is Jesus is the true vine who produces abundantly. It's the first point. Second point is fruitfulness is not optional. Fruitfulness is is not optional. Does that make sense? Because uh, in verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Verse six: If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burn. So we see that fruitfulness is not option, uh, optional, and we have come to see a little bit of what this fruitfulness is. But now let's let's find out how does this work? How does a person become fruitful? Uh, can we do this ourselves? And the answer is no. Um, if you look at um, verse uh, 4 Jesus says abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me so where does this fruitfulness come from keep in mind we're not we're not getting saved because we're fruitful we're fruitful because we're saved We're not, getting, we're not becoming fruitful to win God's love. We're fruitful because God has shed his love upon us. There's a huge difference between the two things there, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Well, no, Judah's problem is he wasn't abiding in God. He wasn't abiding in Christ. And therefore, he wasn't bearing fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Okay, well, now the question is, what does it look like to abide? I've got a couple of quotes from you for you that I think are so helpful. Uh, the first one uh, says this. There are some people who visit Christ. There are others who abide in Christ. Let's let that start, and let's think about it. There are some people who visit Jesus, maybe in a time of need. In a time of need, Lord, help me. I'm in this jam. Lord, will you help me? They'll visit Jesus. Or maybe on Sunday morning, we'll come and visit Jesus. Or maybe, maybe maybe at a Bible study, or maybe at a, a devotion, or whatever it might be. We'll go visit Jesus. But there's other people, says the scholar, who abide in him. So what does it mean to abide in him? Another quote: To abide in Christ is to maintain our belief in him. Notice the word maintain. It's to maintain our belief in him. I could add some comments to this I think will be helpful. It's a belief of continued trust and dependence. And I think the word dependence is really a key word in this particular text here. As I am preaching, I could preach right now in dependence upon my own strength, my own intellect, my own ability. I could do that. And in doing that, I would be doing you a massive disservice. Because I, I, probably, I may have the ability to arouse your curiosity and keep you interested for 45 minutes and entertain you, but one thing I can never do is produce eternal fruit in your hearts and your lives. You know, I read an article here just recently about a, a preacher, and he said wonderful things in the article. But the whole time I was reading the article, I was, I was dissatisfied with the article because he seemed to be referring to the preacher as a heart surgeon. And then finally, at the very end of the article, he says the preacher is that he wants to be a better heart surgeon. And I think I understand what he's trying to say, but the problem with that whole article that I had was I am not a heart surgeon any more than a scalpel is a heart surgeon. All we are is Instruments and in the hands of the heart surgeon, and I think when I think I think when we start thinking of ourselves as heart surgeons, we're we're in danger of putting our faith and trust in ourselves. Does that make sense? I don't mean to be unkind, and I'm not trying to twist anyone's words, uh, because I think that I, I'm going to assume this pastor knows better and all that, and agree with everything I just said. Um, but I'm just giving you an illustration from the pulpit. The, the 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 exercise of preaching and teaching needs to be one that's carried out in complete dependence upon Jesus for that exercise. Does that make sense? And not just for preaching and teaching, but what about for tomorrow morning? What about when we get up and we go through the course of our day? Are we going to be able to do that in our own strength? Tammy and I are in a habit every morning when we when we say, um, When we give the Lord thanks for our breakfast, one thing that we say every morning is, Lord, empower us to set our hearts on you. Empower us afresh this morning as we seek and we strive to set our hearts on you. Why would we say that? Because of verse 5. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. But here's the... See, so we can't produce this fruit of ourselves. I think we all know this. How can we produce this? Listen, if you want to be fruitful, the key to being fruitful is abiding. And what is abiding? Continued dependence and trust upon the Lord. And it's something that can be nurtured. It's something that can be nurtured, and it's something that's nurtured on both the human side and the divine side. How does... How does the divine side, how does God nurture this fruit? Verse 2, you see the second part there? First part, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Why? This this, This branch is apart from Christ. This branch is not in a faith union with Jesus. You see, I want to argue very forcefully that is not what Jesus is saying. He's saying the opposite. It's being tossed out because it is not in a faith union with Jesus. If we take in me in verse 2 to be a faith union with Jesus, the rest of the metaphor doesn't make sense. But the second part, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. There's an old Italian fella down, well, he's, I, I, I don't know what his health is like anymore because last couple of times I was down near his place. He, didn't have, he used to have this wonderful garden in his backyard, and it was beautiful. He had vines. He had a number of things there. And, and uh, if you talk to this guy, he was talking about that garden. That garden was just uh, the apple of his eye. And, man, he knew a lot about gardening, and he had a beautiful garden going on. Um, and uh, he he would talk about pruning uh, abnormalities out of various branches uh, in his plants. You know, you prune that, that section out uh, that's that's just it's unhealthy so you get rid of it. In a sense, he's kind of a, a, a surgeon, if you will, of these plants, pruning. And that's the imagery we have here. It would have been understood very, very well by the original audience. And here we see it's the father who is the pruner. The father is the vine dresser. The father is the one who is doing this pruning and this work. Well, when we carry that into the spiritual realm, which is Jesus' point here and his intention, what does that look like in our lives? Well, you know, we could start by thinking of Hebrews 12 and that idea of God disciplining the one he loves. You can read that this afternoon. God disciplines the one he loves. If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you've, you have some understanding of what I'm talking about, about being disciplined, right? I know I do. Is it pleasant? No. What's the point? Is it to be mean? No. It's right here. It's it's right here in that verse. It's that we might bear more fruit. What kind of fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, that kind of fruit. Fruit that enables us to cling to Jesus even closer. Fruit that enables us to become more and more like Jesus. Fruit that enables us to overcome sin that brought the discipline. We're sinning in ways right now that we don't even know about. Does everybody here believe that? God doesn't show us all at once, does he? You know, um, everybody that I have been privileged to know who has walked with the Lord for a long period of time and has become what I would say a really holy person, they all have one thing in common. They see themselves as being totally and completely undeserving of a single blessing that they've ever received in their lives. Why? Because they have walked all these decades, all these years with the Lord, and the Lord has shown them more and more of their sinfulness that they didn't even know about. And every time the Lord shows us sinfulness that we don't know about, what does that show us in turn? It shows us just how much Jesus died for us what penalty did he pay for each one of us? I thought you just covered some big things in my life, but here you're covering all these other things that weren't even on my radar. And how much more is there on my radar that you've covered that I don't know about that you're not even going to bother to show me? Now, as soon as we start thinking along that line, don't you feel your heart starting to burn for the Lord with that kind of love? Love? Well, it happens, it it happens as the scalpel cuts. Because conviction of sin is uncomfortable, isn't it? What about temptation? And I especially speak to those who've walked with the Lord for a while. How does temptation feel? Now, you don't go through with it, but you're tempted to. And you've got this, you've just got this going on in your thought life. And you find your thought life entertaining it. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? That's that's a cursed feeling, isn't it? Isn't that a good feeling? That's an awful feeling. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you want to know if there's fruit in your life, if you're experiencing an awful feeling as you experience it, that is a great mark that you are in the vine, especially if you see this, Lord, how can I sin against you this way? I I haven't done it and I'm not going to do it. But be really careful if you keep entertaining it. It's dangerous. But right now, at this point in time, how can I even be thinking this? How can I even, as long as I've been walking with you now, how can I even, how can I even have this thought enter into my mind? It's the scalpel. And you say, Lord, help me with this. Help me with this terrible thought. I'm ashamed to even bring it up to you. But I name it by name, and I ask for you to help me with it. And then he does. Doesn't that make you want to serve him more? Doesn't that make you feel more secure in him? (laughs) What's that do for your insecurity? Like, Lord, I know this about me, and I know you know this about me, and you didn 't cast me away but but you brought healing in my life in this area that gives you that gives you um, an impetus and courage to bring the next thing to him doesn't it and as you go through the years, as you go through the decades, talk to somebody, if you know somebody in your life who 's walked with Jesus for a long time. Bring all this up to him. Say, you know, I heard Rick say this, and this is what he said, and what do you think? And they're going to tell you. They are going to tell you this is the way it works. And they're going to tell you that this is how my love for Christ has grown. They're also going to tell you that they do not think they're all that fruitful. But you're going to tell them, I love to be around you. Because you just radiate and glow with the glory of God. And they'll go, what? Me? Does anybody know somebody like that? It's the way it is, isn't it? And they're like a magnet. They're just like magnets. How did they come to be that way? This work in verse 2, pruning. The painful work of pruning. But let's back up even a step before that. How did this fruit come to be in their lives? Abiding. Believing. Continued trust in God. You see, the the folks that have reached this point that I'm talking about do not trust themselves. They're not self-confident in this worldly way. They've learned over the years that their dependence and their trust and their confidence is better placed in Christ. That's abiding. They've grown in their ability to abide. And in growing in their ability to abide, they have become more fruitful. Between this growing in the ability to abide and being pruned, growing in this ability to abide and being pruned, they've grown in this faithfulness. I want to leave you with a really wonderful note. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, this is where God is taking you. And if he he allows you to dwell on this earth for another 20, 10, 20, or 30 years or longer, you will probably one day be a person like I am describing. Is that wonderful or what? But in the next life, as we step through this doorway of death and we step into the presence of God, well, then we'll be perfectly like that. Either way, this is what's in your future. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's difficult to talk about these things without crying tears of joy. Oh, Father, what do we return in response to such a great message as you've given us here in John 15? This idea of abiding, and we haven't even got to the explanation yet. It's such a rich and wonderful metaphor that's so far from teaching us that we can lose our salvation, but it's teaching us to abide and to look at this work of abiding and progress in the art of abiding, that by your power and grace we would be more fruitful. And it's very clear, Lord, you've been very clear that this is not a comfortable path to take for the vine dresser will prune us. We will experience hardships in our own lives and in the lives of our families. We will experience conviction of sin and temptation. We will we'll experience hard times economically, hard times emotionally, hard times, you name it, all descriptions, whatever is needful for us to experience for the pruning process to take place. What is necessary for us to experience and for the process of this surgery to take place, we will experience. But, oh, Father, only so that we can become more fruitful and then grow in our ability to abide as we let go of trusting in ourselves and being self-confident and growing and trusting in dependence upon you. Oh, Father, we thank you for this wonderful work. And, Father, we thank you that not only do we get to look at the gospel in the written page, but also, Lord, we get to see the gospel on the table this morning as well, Father. And, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, Lord, uh, we desire right now, Lord, uh, to confess our sins, Father. We desire to confess our sins before you, to pause for a moment that we all may uh, confess our sins, Lord, that we may come to the table in a worthy manner, Lord, and not in an unworthy, unbelieving manner. And, O oh, Father, we thank you, O oh, Lord, for uh, the uh, sacrament that you have given us of the Lord's Supper, of communion. Um, Father, we thank you for these symbols that we have that symbolize how this has all been made possible by the broken body of Christ and the blood poured out uh, through his death on the cross taking our sins away from us, O Lord, and through his giving his righteousness to us and by virtue of his resurrection imparting new life. O Father, we thank you that, Lord, we have a great salvation ahead of us, a great salvation even now that we taste even here in this present hour and that we have a great future ahead of us, Lord, a a future of being Christ-like for all eternity in your presence, So, Father, we pause now that you may hear our confession, Lord. We pause now that, Father, you may hear each one of us individually as we silently confess our sins uh, to you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for hearing our confession. Oh, Lord, we thank you, oh, Father, for the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the glorious gospel we have. Oh, Father, the good news of Jesus Christ, that, Lord, we can be truly cleansed of our sins and brought into a right relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.